but we found and befriended and interviewed two convicted bank robbers. We said, like, why'd you rob a bank? Could have robbed everything. And he said, I just don't like banks. I don't like that they have all the information about money, but they keep it to themselves. Mm. And I was like, oh, shit. That's Interesting. I think they do. I think that's right. I think they do keep it all to themselves. A lot of them do. And so he's like, I don't understand why they don't actually help people. That's Ben Zeidler, the co-founder of nonfiction research who had to lean on seasoned bank robbers to find the moral compass of the financial industry. Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked is my guest, Ben Zeidler from Nonfiction Research. He and his business partner, Gunny Scarpo, started nonfiction to, quote, gleefully violate the norms of traditional research. So what does that mean exactly? Well, They've ventured, you know, unchaperoned into a prison, surveyed rap lyrics to chart personal finance trends, and, you know, run quantitative studies on the secret sex lives of Americans. So, as you can imagine, there's many layers to unpack here with him, so I had to make this a two-parter. So, let's dig in. Welcome, Ben Zeidler from Nonfiction. Welcome to the Uncooked Podcast. We are so happy to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and chat research with you for a little bit. Yeah. And we need to actually bust some myths about research. So I'm hoping that you're into that. I'm ready. Um, Cool. (laughs) So what I'd love to do is start with breakdown for people who don't know you to tell them a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, and really what is nonfiction? Sure. So I'll sort of start with the end and then we'll go back. So nonfiction research uh, started with myself and my co-founder, Gunny Sarfo, about three or four years ago. Before that, he was the head of uh, strategy at Vice Media's digital agency. And I was working with Scott Galloway at L2, which got bought by Gartner. But before that, we were together at an agency where he ran strategy and I ran research and analytics. We sat next to each other. We were like twins joined at the hip every day, same P&L, same team. And we worked there for six and a half years together, seven years uh, scoping projects together, working on them together. And that was sort of like the genesis of nonfiction. And it's a research company, which is rare. I think most companies like ours, they're research plus something else, right? They do like a strategy or they'll do comms planning or they'll dip into creative. And like they're making videos. We really uh, are focused on the research aspect of it, which is, I think, a little bit different. Can you talk to me about the name of nonfiction and how you guys landed on, on that yeah. as your name? We had a list of like two or 300 names and they were horrible. Most were like, we were going to- Two or 300, seriously? We we knew, we knew we wanted to start a company. We didn't know what it was going to be called. We knew it was going to be this like uncensored take on research. Like we knew we were going to interview unusual experts. All the other research out there has a fictional element to it, whether it's like bad user personas or it's like those, those leaps of logic that you see in a lot of bad research. And for us, our whole thing was like getting to the truth, right? We wanted to get to that consumer truth and do whatever it takes to get there. And so when he said nonfiction, I was like, okay, you win. That's it. I would love to understand what was kind of the white space that you guys were trying to fill that to your point that you were just making before is that there's other bends to research, but there's these little nuances that I don't think a lot of people know about. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the white space, that's a great question. The white space is really what you described, which is being handed reports that don't 
help you make decisions around your consumer, right? They don't really help you. They might help you understand the broader market or market size or whatever it is, but they don't help you understand like the lifeblood of the consumer and what's really going on inside their their minds. Is part of that problem, and I'll call it a problem, but yeah. is, is part of that problem that the syndicated research, you know, they're not sharing your hypothesis or your questions, right? So they had their own sense of what they wanted to go and find out. So you're trying to, but you have your own set of questions that you're trying to get answered. Yeah. Is it that there's a, you know, kind of a disconnect there? Or are you saying that they are using methods that are inferior to kind of uh, the methodologies that you're looking at? Yeah, I guess I would say that they're kind of trying to boil the ocean and make sense of a big category all at once. And that's because they have, you know, what do they have, 100 people reading each piece? Like they have to serve all of those different audiences, right? And so when I look at a lot of syndicated research, it's almost like there is no hypothesis, right? There is one. It just they're just trying to understand as many of these little components as they could. What's the market size? Who are the major brands? How much is each is each responsible for? Uh, what are the core reasons why people buy? But it's it's still really really up here. And so yes, uh, we get the benefit of having a hypothesis. We have a question that we're going in with to answer. So it might not be totally fair to say apples to apples like us versus a syndicated research partner. We work well in conjunction with them, but. I don't know that I feel the hypothesis coming through. And I don't know that I feel the consumer coming through. Right? I don't feel like they've done the dirty work to really get Which in. Which is what in your mind? Which is actually having the conversations with the consumers, I think is a big part of it. Uh, talking to people who might know about those consumers in mass. So certain experts, I think expert opinions are really important to us. We could talk about that a little bit. And playing around with quantitative data, right? So a lot of these, a lot of the syndicated ones, and I don't mean to like take down syndicated research, but they put the same reports out year over year over year, right? It's like 2018, 2019, 2020. And so they'll repeat a lot of the same questions, same answer choices every year. So you kind of, at some point, like they're fishing for a certain type of fish as opposed to seeing what they catch. And for us, like, I think there's a mentality of like, let's go out there and see what we catch. So then given what you just kind of articulated, if you were to sum up the, like, what's the problem nonfiction is solving and why yeah. is it important to strategists or yeah. for brands? It's that we're going further down than the surface level insights that are out in every single trend report that you read. And we're, we're attacking the human truth behind it. So, you know, Secret Financial Lives is our, like, flagship report. We've put out a bunch since then, but I think that one probably still has the most uh, media coverage on it. And we wrote that report, I'll tell you, like uh, a behind the scenes secret, when we were putting that together, we called it the banking report for six months when we were working on it. It was the banking report, right? That was the vertical it's financial services. And then somewhere along the way, we all looked at each other and we're like, wow, it's not really about banking. Like, yes, banks have something to do with this and they're going to have a role at the end of this. But this is about people and it's about money. And I think that's a different shift than what you see other research outfits doing, right? There's a million like future financial services reports out there that are talking about like mobile checking and personalization, and all those things. But if you really want to understand Americans and their money, you really need to understand Americans and their money. 
2,000 people told nonfiction their darkest secrets, and because they show up as behaviors and feelings, they're invisible to conventional research. None of these show up in store sales or pricing models or common survey responses. In their report, The Secret Financial Lives of Americans, nonfiction uncovered a staggering number of Americans who are leading double lives when it comes to money. To their friends and neighbors, their lives look normal, even prosperous. But privately, behind closed doors, Americans are badly in need of help with money and all the emotions that surround it. For example, they found that pop culture is distorting expectations. No surprise there. 28% of millennials admit to intentionally making themselves look wealthier in their social media posts. This is more than just sporting that Gucci belt buckle. This is really about distorting and giving rise to unhealthy behaviors like running up their credit cards to buy things that they don't need and travel to exotic places just to impress. Money evokes big emotions for people like shame and desperation. 60% of Americans earning less than 50K have cried about not having enough money. You might hear that and say, well, all right, I get that. But what about this? 41% of Americans earning over $200,000 have cried about not having enough money. That's where the biggest disconnect comes in because that just doesn't make any sense. And digging into those disconnects is really what nonfiction does best. But for us, we decided to pick the topic up again when we started nonfiction because we were thinking about what we could write about as like a big first piece. We wanted it to be free. We wanted it to show our chops, show what we could do. It's still free. You can download it on the website today. Sometimes we'll run into uh, prospective clients who say like, well, we, we like secret financial lives, but like we're having a hard time understanding how it's going to apply to whatever widgets. And I'm always a little confused by that. We have to like work, work around that because to me, it's all secret financial lives, right? Any topic is secret financial lives. It's, right. it, there's, there's hidden behaviors and emotions and it's complex and it's between people. And like, uh, you know, if we can study that, I think we can study any other emotional topic. So for us, we wanted to come out with a piece that studied, you know, a, like a core human emotion, which of course around Bonnie, everybody deals with that. And we wanted to do it differently. So like the big stat that got picked up by MSNBC and a couple others was that 52% of people have cried because they didn't have enough money at the time, right? All right. And then we cut that data by those earning over $200,000 or more annually, which is like a huge sum of money outside of what, like four cities in the United States. And it was still 41%. So we're like, okay, why is everybody crying about money? And you start right. digging it's in on that. It's still high. It's still really high. And then you start digging in and you find okay, well, there's all these holes here and there, there, you know, and, and we, so we did that quantitative approach, but it's a little different than asking like, which services do you most want from your bank? Right. So like that feels different. And then in the interviews, we're talking to consumers about, you know, some of their like deepest and darkest unmet needs when it comes to money and thinking about, okay, what could banks do about that? And then experts, which I alluded to earlier, are always a big part of our reports. And we try to come up with some experts that are a little bit like, call them adjacent to experts. So for this, we did the bank CEO, right? Because if you're going to do a secret financialized report, like you should talk to the bank CEO. But we found um, and befriended and interviewed two convicted bank robbers. Um, I love it. Yeah. And we asked them how they would remake the financial services industry. Why, and why did you rob a bank? You could rob 
family liquor store or whatever, right? How and, did you wait? You have to stop on that for a second. Yeah. You can't just gloss over the I fact know. that you interviewed bank robbers. How does one come across a bank robber and be like, hey, I hear you robbed some banks. I'd love right. to interview you. How, right. how does it take us through that one? So Gunny is the, the master of this. And then uh, Gunny's a convicted felon. That's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We, Gunny is always thinking like, okay, who would know about this? And I'm like, I don't know, bank CEO? He's like, no, no, no. But like, who not like a bank CEO would also know about this thing, right? And then we start thinking and he comes up with bank robbers. He's like, hey, I'd really love to talk to some bank robbers. And he sent me on some goose chases before, but this was like uh, a, a new one. And then my job is to go find these people, right? And that's what I'm good at. So I tracked down a few convicted bank robbers who had been released, right? And I, I knew their names and I found in a couple of cases, other quotes that they had given, right? So I knew that they were at least open to being interviewed. So I started to get a couple names and you could see because you had the article of when they got arrested and then maybe you had another article 10 years later when they're reflecting on that experience. You're like, okay, great. Uh, this bank robber, the one I'm thinking of is Clay. Clay is served his time, paid his debt to society. He's now out. He's talking about the experience. Great. He's re rehabilitated. Perfect. The problem is that all these bank robbers that we found, and we ended up talking to two, we found way more than that, but they were in prison when everyone was getting social accounts. So no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, no nothing. So I find Clay uh, in a personal finance subreddit, and he's giving financial advice out to people in the oh personal finance. I couldn't even believe it. And it's like really good financial advice, right? He's talking about like, like Dave Ramsey stuff, like paying off smaller debts first and like how you do all this stuff, like legitimately helpful financial advice. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. This guy is- That's hilarious. Yeah. And so I reached out to him. We had, and was he, was he positioning himself on Reddit as like, hey, I'm an ex-bank robber and I know stuff? Or he just positioned himself as like, hey, I just, I'm a thought leader in the space and I want to help. Positioned himself as financially literate. And understanding the topic. And he did. He did. I love it. So maybe he was reading Dave Ramsey in prison. I don't know. But the, the advice is pretty good. So I reached out to him. And then it's a little bit of a dance, right? Because, you know, when you're dealing with experts, and we, we talk to people from all walks of life, right? So when we did the report on intimacy that's on our website, we did interviews with male and female escorts. And you don't, you don't normally email them and you're like, hey, I want to do an interview. And then they're like, great, when can we record it? Right? There's lives at stake and you have to be sensitive to that um in a lot of cases people aren't using their real names um and so we're always cognizant about like how to make sure people are comfortable clay has let me use his name but yeah then you do the dance and you make sure he's comfortable and we got on the the call and midway through the call you knew right you were like this convicted bank robber is like giving us the moral compass for this whole story uh and he had talked about how we said, like, why'd you rob a bank? Could have robbed everything. And he said, I just don't like banks. I don't like that they have all the information about money, but they keep it to themselves. Mm. And I was like, oh, shit. That's Interesting. I think they do. I think that's right. I think they do keep it all to themselves. A lot of them do. And so he's like, I don't understand why they don't actually help people. And so in Secret Financial Lives, you see us keep bridging out that way, right? Like, what's the need that people have? okay, uh, women are unsure if they're paid fairly in the workplace, right? Like we know they're not, but they're generally unsure if they are. What can banks offer? Is it, is it salary counseling? Is it negotiation help? Like what, what is the service banks can offer, right? To take their knowledge of how money is made 
right? And, and to put that out into the marketplace. So everything in that report, it starts like very emotional with American stories, but the place where we end is things banks can do right now to make Americans' financial lives better. So I looked into this bank robber Ben interviewed and found Clay quoted in an article titled, 10 tips for robbing a bank from a retired bank robber. And can I tell you something? There's a lot of similarities between brand strategy and robbing banks. I swear, seriously, follow the logic with me. The first thing Clay says is, do your homework. He never got caught. He ended up turning himself in. Clay never got caught because he researched how other bank robbers were caught. So he didn't do what they did, duh. They zigged and Clay zagged. He found the white space of robbery. Amazing. Again, in another point, Clay says, expect complications, but remain calm. So like when client feedback comes in, and you don't really understand the reasoning until you probe to find out that removing the word thrive from your strategy line will save their job because their boss loathes the word thrive. No one needs a hot-headed strategist married to a word. So Clay says, remain calm. And here's a big one. Clay urges us to quote unquote, understand the system. He knew banks expected to be robbed, seeing it as an acceptable loss. People expect brands to interrupt and sell. But what if we didn't? What if we elevated the playing field so our work is easily seen instead of having to break through? Clay, if you're listening, we should totally do a workshop together. So did you ever find out why Clay actually was a bank robber? Like, was he in financial dire straits and that was, you know, why or something else? Yeah, he was in a little bit of financial straits. But if I remember it correctly, it was not like a good take relative to the amount of time that you have to do. Robbing banks is like not not good value for your time. Like if you want to rob something, just rob something else. I think he said that when he robbed, he robbed a few banks. I think he said when he was robbing them, he was taking down like I don't know, two or three thousand dollars at a time, and to serve ten years in prison, right. seven years in prison for two or three k. There's like a little bit of a mismatch there. I think he thought it was going to be more. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he, he he talked about being kind of brazen about it too. Like I don't think he wore a mask in most of his robberies. There was a little bit of growing up that I think Clay had to do, and and he did it. And and he has a he has a son as well i think i I don't know whether he had the son when he robbed the banks Mm -hmm. but now he's like he's a father personal finance advice on reddit see that Um, and turned his life around amazing yeah it's really possible i just love a good redemption story don't you Next, we hear how nonfiction helps ad agencies take their work to next level thinking by mining powerful stories from more unexpected sources like Navy SEALs. Yep, Navy SEALs. You're welcome. We talked a little bit about the functional benefits, but can you also talk about the emotional benefits of what some of your research can uncover for either other agencies or strategists, et cetera? Yeah. And you're right. On the functional benefits, it's like, we're going to help you make better decisions, right? So if you are a company that's making $100 million decisions, you should probably spend a little bit of that budget making sure you're right. So to me, that's the functional self. From the emotional standpoint, I like to think we give things heart. We do a lot of work for creative agencies. We work with like the Martin Agency, um, Donna Richman, we work with BBDO and Organic. 
And for them, it's a lot of times they're just doing creative development off of our work. So there's no product change or anything like with the actual thing that they're selling, but it's how they talk about it. I love that because I think that it's like a great compliment to our process that we can get that out such that a creative team would be able to do something with it. Do you have an example of that? Yeah. You could speak to? Yeah, I can. So we just did some work for the ad council who's done, you know, a lot of really interesting like public safety announcement kind of stuff over the last 30 years. And they were doing a campaign on fatherhood. They've been running like a longstanding campaign on fatherhood for a couple of years. And they needed us to do a qual only engagement with them, right? So we didn't need to quantify anything. We just needed to pull these stories out and to understand like what was it that fathers were going through. And I think there's common wisdom that's wrong when people think about fathers, you know, single fathers, maybe absentee fathers, that like they don't want to be there or they're not motivated to be in their kids' lives. And through our interviews, it turned out that that wasn't it at all. They were totally motivated. They wanted to be a part of their kids' lives, but they had a resiliency problem is really what it was. Like they, they needed to be, I don't know, like told to keep showing up basically, right? And so we, through a series of interviews with dads all over the country, I think the team was in like Appalachia doing these interviews live at a halfway house for dads who come out of prison and who are reintegrating back into society. It wasn't a motivation question. It was like a keep going kind of question. Right. And so the campaign that I believe is live, that's the message that we're giving fathers. Right. It's not that message you've always heard of like, you should want to be involved, like do this for your kids. They're already there. Now it's the next thing. It's about how do you keep going? And our unusual expert for that, no bank robbers on that one. But we talked to Navy SEALs for that. Now, why Navy SEALs? Classic gunny. Right. He was like, who can motivate (laughs) men to keep going, even though like the odds seem insurmountable? Right. And who can like male machismo and everything else and break through that to help men like stay engaged. And he's like, I know. And Gunny's father's a military man. So he comes from that background. He's like, we're going to talk to Navy SEALs. They're going to understand how to motivate men. Right. And so we learned a lot of verbiage around that that was able to go into the campaign. And the ad council did that work with Campbell Ewald. And it's really, it's really great work. And I, I love that we were a part of it, empowering it from the start. You know, it took an agency and it took the ad council. And we were in the upfront part, just pulling those stories out. So when we think about like emotional benefits, I think being able to access those stories, pull them out, make sense of them, and then send people off in a direction is sort of like the power of what we do in that case. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. Just do it from the right place. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. I'll say my kid's pretty dope. Here's what's really bubbling up for me from this conversation. I'll start with how Ben described the different approaches between a large research firm and the approach nonfiction takes. He said, quote, they're fishing for a certain type of fish as opposed to seeing what they catch. They thought they were doing a report about banking, but they ended up really finding that people need help way beyond a banking app. They want to learn how to maximize their salary, how to budget, pay down debt, plan an affordable vacation. You only find those answers when you dig to understand what people are really worried about. 
This resonates with me as a brand strategist. Often I'll start discovery with a hypothesis in mind, but I have to follow all the rabbit holes of where the data takes me. That's the process. Researchers and brands of every size need to stop fitting a square peg into the proverbial round hole because you're looking to validate an already baked idea. Let the people fish and see what they catch because it might be exactly what you need to break your brand out of a creative rut. Next, using adjacent experts like bank robbers for a banking report or Navy SEALs for motivation, this is how you find the differentiating nuggets that you need to give your work an edge. I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to visit a prison, although that could be really interesting to observe behaviors, but it's more about tackling questions from new angles and reframing problems beyond what's comfortable. This requires giving researchers the runway they need, but mostly it requires clients with an open mind to give strategists and agencies permission to go there. And speaking of permission, Part two of my conversation with nonfiction will show you the results of what happens when you start to explore the dark corners of human emotion through their Spotify playlists. Here's a sneak peek. We thought that we were going to study Americans' Spotify playlists, which we did, but we thought it was going to be a story about, about suicide and music helping people through dark times. It's kind of like what our hypothesis was going in. So we built a scraper that would, it's anonymous, but it would pull down the titles of the playlists the descriptions and the songs, the tracks, right? And in that, we saw the story. And, and that was like the aha moment was that people were searching for these like deep and dark emotions. It, it was dark the way we kind of thought it was going to be dark, but it, it, it didn't. The suicide story was a specific story within this larger picture of Americans wanting to feel deep and dark emotions, right? And wanting to like struggle with their humanity in all the ways that it, it, it takes them. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. You can learn more about what we do at brandcrudo.com. I want to thank Ben Zeidler from Nonfiction Research for sharing his valuable insights and unconventional research methods with me today. Part two of this conversation will be out next Monday, and I promise you will not want to miss it. You can learn more about what nonfiction does at nonfiction.co. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe from your favorite podcast player. Also, ratings and reviews are the only way the podcast can grow. A quick 60 seconds is all it takes, and your feedback would mean the world to me. Thanks so much for listening.